You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. Welcome to the JNNP podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers. This is our last podcast of 2012. And in a suitably festive spirit, we've got jelly beans and a trip to the Andalusian mountains for you. Or to put it another way, measuring flavour identification in frontotemporal lobar degeneration and the discovery of Emery Dreyfus muscular dystrophy. Jason Warren and Rohani Omar explain what those jelly beans revealed later. I mean, this gives us far more specific clue that there really is a strong, you know, cognitive neuropsychological um, signal that may be contributing to the eating behaviour. But firstly, Alan Emery, who's Emeritus Professor at Green Temple College at the University of Oxford, and the Emery of Emery Dreyfus muscular dystrophy, after delineating the condition from the more common Duchenne's in the 1960s. Here's how he found himself working in genetics. Well, it was very odd, really. Um, I'd gone to the university after military service, and then I did a degree in science, then did medicine. And when I qualified, of course, I was some 10 years older than my peers. And uh, I wanted to do neurology, but, you know, consulting neurologists just beginning when you're 33 or 34 was very difficult. And so my professor, and that was... um, uh, Robert Platt, who became Lord Platt, president of the College of Physicians, suggested genetics. Now, you know, this seemed a very obscure subject in 1961 uh, because, uh, you know, as medics, we were more concerned in Britain than with things like oh, poor nutrition because we still had um, food rationing and poor housing and, of course, infectious diseases. Anyway, I thought, okay, well, we'll see. And I went to America to Johns Hopkins to work with Victor McCusick, who was a world authority even then on genetics. Somebody suggested, well, perhaps, you know, you could look at muscular dystrophy since you're in neurology. Mm. Well, muscular dystrophy seemed a rather odd subject. I knew virtually nothing about it. But um, anyway, over the next month or two, I read a lot and visited various families and got to know what Duchenne was like, because it was mainly Duchenne I was looking at. But of course, we didn't know I was inherited. It seems odd now. We just hadn't got a clue. We thought maybe it was on the X chromosome, but we had no idea. And then this large family had been published in 1961 uh, by Dreyfus and uh, Hogan and um, I thought, well, this this was a big family, and so many affected individuals in the family had had children. So I thought, well, this couldn't be Duchenne, not the Duchenne I'd read about. So I contacted Professor Dreyfus, who really wasn't interested in muscular dystrophy. I mean, he became a world authority on epilepsy, and uh, said, oh, yes, Alan, go ahead. That'd be great. So I drove down to Virginia, where the family was, and I was met by the pro band. <laughs> and straight away, I realized, no, this can't be Duchenne because he was 55 and uh, he was the village schoolmaster. Mm. So were you, um, were you quite surprised when you met him and, and the other members of the family? Were you expecting something significantly more severe? Oh, well, uh, yes. I, I mean, most boys with Duchenne, we knew by then, uh, probably died by the age of 18. And this man was in his 50s. So, no, this couldn't have been Duchenne, though it had been reported as a benign form of Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Anyway, on the Saturday morning, they got them all into the church house and the schoolhouse, and I investigated them all. And, to, and we wanted to know, I wanted to know if uh, it was on the X chromosome. And the best mm. way to do that was... Um, to see if it was linked to, say, colour blindness. So I took some Ishihara plates to measure colour blindness. 
and uh, blood sampling for XG blood group so that Race and Sanger at the Lister Institute in London could look for the XG blood group, which was known to be on the X chromosome. And I took along electrocardiograph machine so I could look at the hearts and blood ta- and chemicals for measuring the creatine kinase levels. Do you know, in those days, it was research was to- totally different from mm. now. You didn't have a big team. You could do it all on your own. Mm. And over the Saturday morning and Saturday afternoon, I examined quite a lot of them, affected males as well as many of the carriers, and then uh, worked all night on Saturday night measuring their enzymes and everything else. And then on Sunday after church they came and then I saw the rest of them who had not seen and by Sunday night I was totally exhausted as you can imagine mm. and then I went back to Baltimore and put all the data together and it seemed to me a very odd disease and so that's how it all began. Was it fairly immediately obvious that it was something different from Duchenne? I mean did you pick up the, the cardiac problems? Yes there? of course well I looked at the ECGs I was very interested in that and found that Quite a lot of them had funny things. One had atrial fibrillation, but there was also evidence of heart block. And I thought, this is very peculiar. And then, of course, the distribution of muscle weakness was uh, quite distinctive, uh, like nothing that um, I'd seen before. I put all the data together, and about a week or two later, uh, presented it as a seminar in our department at Johns Hopkins. And Victor McCusick was not terribly interested. I don't think anybody was really. And I don't thought, think they thought that a young chap just coming into the field could have described something entirely new. And of course, it was several years when I got back to Britain in 64. Um, I put it all together properly. And uh, it was published in 1966 in your journal. Then, of course, nobody was terribly interested. Then it was some years later that uh, one of my colleagues in New York spotted a family and he called it Emery Dreyfus, and that's how I got the t- title. Mm. And, and what about the inheritance pattern? I well, mean, was, was the family big enough to just to look at the who was affected and see that it was X-linked? Yes, well, just looking at the pedigree, and I've got a copy in front of me now of the original family, uh, there were five generations right. and uh, affected males on three generations, and it was clearly only inherited through females. So it clearly was X-linked. There was no doubt whatsoever about that. Mm. So, so tell me a bit about the, the progress in genetics since. Now, there are over 30 different types have been recognised and uh, neuromuscular diseases altogether, genes have ad- identified in some 350 mm. uh, cases. Of course, many of these are extremely rare. It's still Duchenne is the commonest form and, um, and related Becker, they're still the commonest form. Uh, we had an organization set up in 1989 in Europe called the European Neuromuscular Center, uh, which was first of all in Paris, <clears throat> and then after two years moved to uh, Netherlands. And uh, there, with groups of uh, carefully selected research workers from all over the world, uh, it was possible to identify, first of all, the clinical features of these 30-odd different types of dystrophy. Mm. And then once you've got this precise diagnosis clinically, then you can look for the genes. And all the genes have now been found for these conditions. And of course, if you add in all the neuromuscular disorders as well, as I said, uh, there are over 300 of those now. Mm. And of course, knowing the genes is very important. First of all, it means you can, if you know the gene and you can test for the gene, you can establish the diagnosis uh, clearly, because then you're not just based on what you can see and feel, but also on the genetics. And secondly, knowing the gene, you can offer 
counseling to people who carry the disease in the family and of course prenatal diagnosis if that's acceptable by the family and then of course now gene therapy which has really taken off in the last two or three years. And, and what about uh, treatment? I mean was in the 60s was this family receiving any kind of treatment? No not really there was none. Um, I mean people tried treatment we once recently put this together in a table in an article we're doing and Oh, I think over the years there have been 30-odd different drugs have been tried, but there was usually very little logic behind them, and none of them worked. The only drug in the last, or medicine we should say nowadays, shouldn't we, the only medicine that's really worked in the last few years and is of some benefit are steroids, though they have to be given under medical care and supervision. But it does uh, seem to help uh, boys with Duchenne at least uh, to slow the disease a little. But it's not really a treatment, and it's certainly not a cure. And mm. so everybody's now looking towards gene therapy, some way of replacing the defective genes with the normal gene in the hope that this will uh, cause an effective uh, cure. Is, is gene therapy kind of the, the research avenue that you're most excited about now? Yes, I think so. There are a lot of different areas, but the two main ones, and we're talking mainly about Duchenne because that's the commonest mm. form, is um, there's a protein in normal muscle called eutrophin, and uh, it's very like dystrophin, which is absent in Duchenne. And uh, the idea is to raise eutrophin in these boys so that it might replace the function of the missing dystrophin. That's one approach. And then uh, and finding a, some sort of uh, medicine that will raise the level of eutrophin. The other approach is to, um, oh, it's much more technical, but uh, it's uh, to look for sorts of ways of liganding joining together bits of the DNA to um, isolate the mutation, the cause of the disease. And uh, this is uh, receiving a great deal of uh, attention at the present moment. Great. Well, um, fingers crossed for, for those avenues then. Yes. Well, I suppose the most important thing I would want to point out is, you know, no matter what research goes on in these diseases, and it is incredibly important it's the care of the families is terribly important too. Mm. In fact, you know, it's so easy to forget there's a patient at the end of all this. And if you work in a hospital or a laboratory, you may never see the patients and how they cope at home. One of the first things I did when I got back to Britain in 64 was to get the muscular dystrophy campaign in Britain, a charity organization, a big one, uh, to... Um, fund family care officers and this has now been established these are nurses who go into the community after a diagnosis has been made to see how they're coping and then they would involve you know tell me what was going on and then i go and visit the families at home and i can't emphasize too much how very very important this is mm. you know i've known families with duchenne where the parents couldn't carry the boy upstairs to bed, so what was he going to do? have a bed downstairs, and what room were they going to use? Now, that's a very simple question, but there are many, many others like it, and I think caring for the families and patients at home is incredibly important and something we shouldn't forget. And the muscular dystrophy campaign, I should advertise it, um, mm. that organisation has really taken off, and it, uh, it uh, coordinates research, it funds research, and, of course, it's... Uh, offers lots of hope and help for families with the disease. So the muscular dystrophy campaign is very important indeed. Thanks there to Alan Emery. Links to his original paper and also impact commentary are available on the podcast page. 
Now, what can examining flavour identification in patients with frontotemporal lobar degeneration tell us about these disorders? Jason Warren and Rohani Omar, they're both from UCL's Institute of Neurology, have been looking into it. So, I mean, what did you expect to find when you started? Did you have many clues from previous literature? So a reason for studying uh, flavour was really a clinical reason. The um, patients in this group of diseases um, have major problems with particularly um, social behaviours, among which are eating behaviours, and sometimes get very dramatic changes both in their food preferences. Um, For example, they often start to prefer, strongly prefer, um, sweet or spicy food to a pathological degree, uh, or they get very um, odd food preferences. For example, there was one patient who quite liked to put um, maple syrup on his cornflakes, and there was another one who regularly would add salt to his coffee. So this gave us a clue that there is something seriously amiss with uh, people's ability, patients' ability to process flavour. And we didn't have much information about it. There'd been um, some cases, single case studies, and a small study from our group before which had given us a clue that there was an abnormality. Mm. Um, But it's a difficult thing to study. Mm. And had had anyone looked at the anatomy and the flavour performance before? So the the anatomical clues are really derived from um, studies in healthy people, which includes um, both behavioural testing but also functional imaging of the brain. Um, and probably the thing to say, um, which may not be obvious, but from a neuropsychological perspective, flavours are quite complex compounds, sensory mm. stimuli. Uh, so many people would think that they involve taste, which of course they do, and and odour information. But even beyond that, there are other senses involved, and this is probably why, you know, um, flavours like jelly or paprika or cornflakes are, you know, very characteristic, because they're these these multi-sensory compounds. So um, in terms of understanding how the brain processes flavours, we really need to be looking at really the brain mechanisms for a sort of uh, multi-sensory integration and judging from the evidence in healthy people these are brain areas like the anterior temporal lobes, mesial temporal lobes, Mm. the orbitofrontal cortex and the limbic system which is probably the the brain mechanism for linking flavours up with dimensions like emotion, motivation and reward. Um, So they are just the areas of course that are affected in frontotemporal dementia. Mm. And Rohani, could you tell me a little bit about how you actually went about testing um, flavour ability in those in these patients? Um, from the the paper, I gather you had twenty five patients and then seventeen controls, and you said you used a battery of novel tests. So how did you actually do this? Yes, thank you, Harriet. Um, we, based on previous um, literature using jelly beans, there are many reasons for um, using jelly beans. Firstly, from initial pilot studies um, that was done in our group, we found that there were flavours that were highly identifiable by a group of um, healthy older British subjects. And also, they are uniformed in size and shape and removes any identifiable cues from external or extra sensory modalities um, that Jason touched on earlier. So we designed a novel battery. Each subject was required to taste 20 jelly beans. And for each flavour, a trial consisted of three choices, one being the target flavour, 
The other two foils consisted of a semantically related foil and another being a distant foil. They belonged to two broad food categories. They were either fruit or non-fruit. The subject was asked to taste the jelly bean and they were presented with a word picture combination on a computer screen. And they were asked to select which flavour they thought was represented by the jelly bean. Sure. And then you also looked at the, the neuroanatomy and also the, the, their behaviour as well. Is that right? Yeah, so we, so we had uh, a, a series of um, uh, behavioural rating scales that the mm. patient's caregivers completed for us, in particular including uh, measures of eating behaviour in everyday life. Uh, and we used a voxel-based morphometry on patient's brain MRI scans uh, to look at structural grey matter correlates of um, performance on these experimental tests, particularly the flavour mm. identification aspect of the test across mm. the disease group. So, so what did you find when you looked at the, the flavour identification compared to the morphology and the anatomy? All the patient subgroups performed worse than the controls in both flavour and odour identification. And that flavour identification correlated with grey matter areas that formed part of the anterior temporal lobe network. Mm. So that goes with our initial hypothesis mm. And what about between the different variants? Did you find any differences here? We did not find a clear association to group subtype um, amongst the FTLD population. And that might be because of the relatively small numbers that we were looking at in each um, each group. I think that, that's, that's likely to be right. But the, the more interesting uh, speculation is that it, the reason we didn't see the differences is because actually this really does cut across disease subgroups, uh, sure. which is kind of what our clinical uh, impression would be, I think. And d- did you find a link between the abnormal um, eating behaviours and the flavour identification? Was it was your study powerful enough to show that? No, we, did, we didn't see a strong, uh, a, a significant association. Uh, but it, I think... There is the issue of the small numbers, which Rahani mentioned, but we also are dealing with quite a noisy signal in the eating mm. behaviour. And I think one thing I would really like to do uh, is to work with you know, my colleagues in psychiatry, for example, to develop new really behavioural instruments to try and measure these things. Uh, and of course, also you know, to poll the, the caregivers and the families because they see what's going on in everyday life. And actually, the, the kinds of behavioural rating instruments we've got at the moment are quite blunt. So even though the result from this study was was technically negative. I think it is. I, I would see that as, as, if anything, a motivation to go out and uh, and develop new instruments. The the problem with something like eating behaviour, knowing that someone has abnormal eating behaviour, is you know is that due to a problem with their flavour processing, for example, or is that due to some very generic thing, like for example, you know, loss of um, social awareness of manners and disinhibition and mm. impulsivity, for example. Uh, I mean, this gives us far more specific clue that there really is a strong, you know, cognitive neuropsychological um, signal that may be contributing to the eating behaviour. So it would it would certainly um, potentially motivate further studies to try to disentangle those, those right. factors. In practical terms, uh, you know, understanding that patients are likely to have these kinds of difficulties could translate to the sorts of, um, you know, advice that you give to to patients and their caregivers about diet and about the way in which food is presented. And also, Mm. I guess, you know, understanding of these apparently extremely bizarre and inexplicable phenomena, like, you know, why is my husband suddenly... You know, you know, wanting to eat these strange things. Uh, mm. You know, is, does this mean? What does this mean? You know, it gives us some way of 
grappling with that in a way that hopefully we can then convey to caregivers. Mm, great. Are there any other avenues you'd like to see explored with relation to this? Well, we've got really, I think, here in the flavour processing, quite an interesting model, thinking quite broadly for how the brain processes stimuli that are really quite intimately linked to really quite fundamental things like, for example, emotion. And food, there's no question, has a strong emotional um, quality. It certainly has a very prominent social quality. Um, and, and also to, you know, the sorts of things that drive behaviours. I mean, in food, there's a very obvious example of survival value. You need appetite, ultimately, to live. Um, and, and, you know, the whole psychiatry literature on eating disorders underlines that. So, I mean, there certainly are important uh, entities in their own right, um, these, these chemosensory um, stimuli. But, you know, they, they also are a model for understanding how the brain links up the sort of incoming sensory world uh, with these sort of internal states and also with emotion and motivation. And the other um, interesting model system, which I think has some interesting parallels with flavour processing, is music. Um, and that's another interest of our group. Uh, and, and in fact, the parallels I would see as being the social value, um, the complexity of the stimuli, of course, um, but also the strong links to emotion and also to memory and actually both um, flavour, certainly odours, but also flavours and music are very potent at releasing memories and we don't fully understand yet why that should be even though you know um, writers and poets have known about this for centuries and have written about it. We as neurologists are only just catching up with them. Great. Well good luck with that future research and hopefully we'll see more of it in JNMP soon. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. And that paper we were discussing is available for free on jnmp.bmj.com. We've also put a direct link on the podcast page for you. That's all for this edition. From everyone at JNMP, have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. You'll be hearing more from us in 2013. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.